the Old Testament, the name for God, where he introduced himself to Moses as, I am who I am. And he, he, he's known as the great I am. And so there's definitely an element of, of claiming and cl- revealing Jesus himself to be God, to be the Christ. But then with each statement, there's like a different aspect, a different dimension of what that means and who Jesus is that we look at. Um, so when he said, I'm the bread of life, it, there was a whole lot in that about being satisfied fully in him. And today we'll see there's a whole lot more that Jesus teaches us about who he is uh, when he says, I'm the light of the world. Uh, so we're going to look at that. Uh, the chapter, John chapters 8 and 9 really kind of uh, de- are dealing with that claim and re- explaining it and illustrating it. We don't have time to get into all of chapter 8 and 9. It's quite a long section. So we're going to focus on chapter 8 verse 12 today, um, which is where he makes the statement. And then we're going to look at chapter 9 where uh, Jesus heals a man who was born blind and he gives him sight uh, and illustrates what it means to be the light of the world and proves it. Uh, so let's read uh, the scripture today, quite a long bit, um, and then we'll pray and ask God to help us. So uh, it should be up behind me. Maybe you can follow in your books, uh, in your Bibles, or uh, on a device if you have one, and, and keep it open because we're going to be keeping our, our noses in that text. So firstly, chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then jump ahead to chapter 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, 
We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark uh, about the meaning of life, about whether there is a God, about what he is like, and about how we should relate to him. But thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus and in your word. And I pray now that as we look at this passage, that we would indeed encounter the light of the world, that you would give us understanding, that we would know Jesus, that we would come to a place of faith and trust in him and worship him. Amen. Much of you have noticed uh, in reading the stories of Jesus that he had an amazing ability to take everyday events or objects and use them as metaphors to powerfully illustrate the gospel. Uh, for example, when he called some of his first disciples who were fishermen, he, he, he rocked up and he said, uh, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And he used that as an analogy and an illustration. Um, last week we saw... Uh, Jesus taking such an everyday thing as bread and saying, I am the bread of life, and using that to illustrate so much about who he is and what he's come to be to us. Um, for, for a few chapters now in John, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. So several chapters are all set uh, while he's spending some time in Jerusalem for, for a few days, and there's this, this big Feast of Tabernacles taking place. And he also uses the, the various ceremonies there uh, to, he turns them into illustrations to reveal something about himself. So in John chapter 7, you can read 
where there's a ceremony of pouring of waters that's happening at the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus uses that opportunity to stand up and say, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and I will give him rivers of living water flowing from within him. Uh, And today we see uh, Jesus uh, is at another ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a ceremony where the whole temple grounds were illuminated. There, There were fires, and the whole temple was lit up at night, and it was done to remind the, the Jews of the time when God had led Israel through the desert by a pillar of fire at night. So during the day, there was this cloud above their camp. And during the night, it, it was like a fire. And, and they followed that. Um, and so this ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles was to remind them of God's faithfulness and provision of, of one of the ways in which he saved his people Israel. And Jesus, at this point, stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, it's a very big claim to make, and he's in dangerous territory, uh, and that's why a lot of people oppose him. I mean, imagine you're at a Christmas dinner, all right, and uh, you're with a whole bunch of people, you're celebrating Christmas, and you stand up and you say, guys, hang on, like, I am actually God's gift to humanity, and we should be celebrating my birthday, like, probably some of you are a little uncomfortable with me even kind of sketching that scenario. I know talking is. It's so wrong and inappropriate and blasphemous, right? But that's kind of what Jesus is doing. He's, he's at the heart of the Jewish religion. He's in Jerusalem at the temple, at the Feast of Tabernacles, at a ceremony where they're remembering and celebrating God's faithfulness. And he's saying, I am the light of the world. It's a huge claim. And it means there's only two responses. You either reject him for blasphemy which is what a lot of the Jewish leaders did and ultimately crucified him for it. Or you accept him wholeheartedly and recognize that he is actually God and is deserving of those claims. But it's a huge claim that he makes. Uh, not only is it a big claim in the context of that ceremony, but to, to say that he's the light of the world conjures up all sorts of Old Testament images and scriptures uh, where God's presence and his revelation and his guidance um, and his salvation is often referred to as light. Uh, But also there are clear messianic prophecies in the Old Testament which speak of God's servant, the Holy One, the Messiah who who was to come into the world to save his people Israel and use the idea of light uh, as as how he's prophesied. Have a look at, at two verses with me from the book of Isaiah. So we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 1 and 2. This is a prophecy where... um, says this, in the future, God will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then a few verses later, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And there's more in in that chapter to read about. Again, Isaiah chapter 42, again written hundreds of years before Jesus. Um, God speaking, God kind of addressing his servant, uh, his holy one who would, who would come into the world. And God says, I will keep you and will make you to be a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Huge prophecies. And perhaps you can already see just how powerfully Jesus is, is revealing that he's the fulfillment of those prophecies. So he's making a massive claim here, and as a result, a debate follows. And the whole of chapter 8, which we're not going to really focus on, 
is this debate. Um, you can read about it. Some of, the, some of them grow more obstinate and reject him outright, but other people, we're told, put their faith in him. Uh, there's definitely a division that Jesus causes with these claims. Uh, but let's jump ahead to chapter 9 now and look at this account of the man born blind. Uh, and I'd like us to see two things. We're going to look out for two things as we, as we do this. Um, the first thing is, uh, is that as the light of the world, Jesus miraculously brings those living in darkness into his light. And the second thing, as the light of the world, Jesus shows up the blindness of those who think they are enlightened. So there's two groups of people, and in both cases, what it means that Jesus is the light of the world means two slightly different things, depending on, on who you are. Okay, so the first thing let's look at is we're going to see how Jesus brings those in darkness into his light. So at the start of the chapter, we see Jesus and his disciples come across a man who we told was blind since he was born. And I'd just like us to think about the darkness of this man's situation. He'd been living in literal darkness all his life. He was born blind, so he didn't even have a concept of light. But more so, he was also in poverty. Probably as a result of his disability, he was poor, and we're told he was a beggar. People knew him as a beggar. The, the uh, social welfare system for dis- people with disabilities was pretty much non-existent uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, and so he was in literal darkness. He was in poverty. Uh, and people judged him. Many people looked down on him and judged him. Uh, the disciples... Uh, asked him, was, who was it that sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin? So people kind of assumed that he's blind because of sin. It must be his own sin. Maybe God knew he would be a sinner and that's why he was blind. Or maybe his parents had sinned and, and out of that sinful situation, this man uh, came to the earth. So he's, he's poor, he's blind, he's judged, he's the lowest of the low, he's been suffering his whole life. He has really no prospects for hope really in the future either. Um, it's a person living in utter darkness. But Jesus comes and approaches this man completely differently. Uh, He doesn't judge him or his parents. Instead, he says that this man's blindness is there to serve, to show God's glory. And Jesus puts mud on the man's eyes. He sends him to the pool of Siloam to wash it, and the man comes back seeing. It's interesting also that the man didn't even do anything to earn Jesus' favor, We don't even see him asking to be healed. Jesus just heals this man. It's an incredible miracle. Um, A really amazing thing to to make someone see who never had seen it. It is a crazy, crazy miracle. So much so that people couldn't believe it. They even thought maybe it's not even the same man. Maybe it's like a lookalike. It's like a body double who's come in. And uh, it's like a big trick. Uh, You know, there must be some catch here. Because it really is that crazy. Um, but there's no mistaking it. The man is there. He says, no, I'm definitely the man. His parents are there. They're like, this is our son. He was blind from birth. Um, there are other people who knew him and, and, and who saw that he can see. So there's actually no denying the miracle. But the miracle is more than just a, a trick. It's more than just a magic trick. It's actually a sign. As, as with all the miracles, especially in the book of John, they're signs. They're illustrations of something greater about who Jesus is. And we see next, after the man has been physically healed, we see him now undergo an even more profound transformation as he comes to know Jesus, the light of the world, uh, in a spiritual way. Um, It's interesting to see how his attitude and understanding of Jesus develops through the passage. So in verse 11, you'll see that 
Jesus refers to him as the man called Jesus. They ask him, you know, how do, who, who healed you? How did this happen? He says, a man called Jesus put mud in my eyes. Um, he's just a man. He knows his name. But by verse 17, a few verses later, the man is starting to, starting to get it. And, he, and he, he says to the Pharisees who are questioning him about this, he says, well, he must be a prophet. And, and a few verses later, he must be sent from God. Otherwise, he could not have done such an amazing miracle. So his understanding is developing. He now recognizes Jesus is a prophet or sent from God. But uh, towards the end of our passage in verse 35, we see Jesus finds the man again and has another conversation with him. Uh, and the lights come on a bit more here. Have a look with me. Let's read again, 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The man has now come the full circle, and he actually recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, and he worships him. Now, to be clear, there, there are other places in the Bible where somebody maybe bows down in front of an angel. The angel always says, no, get up. I'm not God. Don't worship me. So the fact that Jesus allows himself to be worshipped here is, is clear evidence that Jesus is God and is claiming to be God. Um, and that's the point of, of, of what John, the author, is trying to make as well. So the man has come a full circle, both physically, but now also spiritually. He has come to know Jesus, and he, and he has put his faith and trust in him and worshipped him, recognizing him that he is actually God. But of, of course, he's not the only character in the story. And in direct contrast, we see, we see some who dispute what happened and who dispute who Jesus is. And so the second thing we should look for is, is how Jesus shows up the blindness of the enlightened. So we see this group of people called the Pharisees here. Now, the Pharisees uh, were like the religious establishment of the day. Uh, they were the enlightened, the educated people who, who knew everything about the religion. Um, I've, I've come up with a, a cheesy way to pronounce the word Pharisee, um, which, which I think illustrates their attitude. Uh, they were the far Um I hope no one came up with that. I, I didn't steal it from anyone, but it's so obvious that maybe someone did. Because I can just picture one of these Pharisees very condescendingly saying, Far I see, my son. <laughs> Far I see. Because they really saw, they knew it all. They saw through everything. They were particularly good at seeing people as sinners and seeing the sin in people's lives. Um, and they very quickly see a flaw in Jesus' whole uh, approach. Yeah, they, they very quickly see a major flaw in what Jesus has done, and they find it. Uh, and the flaw is that Jesus had worked on a Sabbath day. He had taken clay, he'd taken mud, and he'd made it kind of into a clay pie or brick, and he put on the man's eyes, which technically was, was work. You weren't allowed to make clay bricks. And he'd healed a man, which must also definitely be a lot of work. Um, so they point out that, that this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, it is actually worth just stopping for a moment. I know we kind of laughed at how te technical they're being and silly they're being, but we have to just check, did Jesus actually sin? Because if Jesus sinned, then we're going home early for lunch, um, literally. Because we, the whole gospel is premised on the idea that Jesus was perfect and without sin, and therefore his sacrifice on the cross is a pleasing and sufficient sacrifice for sin. If he had any blemish, any sin at all, then the cross doesn't save us. Okay, so it is important to know whether he had sinned. Um, 
Now, what's important to really understand here is that uh, there are actually several places in, in, in the New Testament where Jesus confronts the Pharisees about all their additional rules and regulations that they make. So they actually, um, the Pharisees and scribes actually had some additional rules and regulations, things that they added on as well. Um, uh, Jesus describes in the book of Matthew as heavy loads put on people's shoulders by the Pharisees. See, they had a different understanding of the law and of rules uh, to what Jesus did. For the Pharisees, the Old Testament laws and these, all these rules and regulations were there to justify themselves. They were there to show how superior they were. They were there to make themselves acceptable to God um, and, and superior to others, uh, which is completely different to the correct use of the law, um, on which Jesus shows us and which also in the Bible we're taught. The law is actually there to show us that we do need a Savior. It's as we look at the law that we see we actually do have a problem of sin. It's not something that we try and keep and, and actually succeed in keeping. We realize we have a problem. If you just think of the Ten Commandments, um, you, you've, if you're anything like me, you've broken the majority of them, perhaps all of them in some way. You know, do not lie, honor your mother and father, um, do not have any idols apart from, make any other thing God except for God. These are things, you can go through the list where, actually probably we all have sinned. And so to think that you're sort of managing to tick those boxes and make yourself acceptable to God means you're actually staying blind to your own desperate need for a Savior. You're keeping yourself blind. Um, You're keeping yourself in the dark through thinking that you're kind of in the light. And so so Jesus didn't sin here. Um, They've added all these extra things on. Um, you can also go check John chapter 7 where Jesus confronts them about the exact same issue and, and tells them to, to make a right judgment about the whole thing of healing on a Sabbath. Um, but nevertheless, this is their strongest argument because the, the evidence for the miracle actually having taken place is overwhelming. Like there's all the witnesses are there, the man himself, the parents, the neighbors. There's no disputing the fact that he was blind and that he can now see. So that much is not in question. So the focus is on just discrediting Jesus, almost kind of blind to the fact of what he did, making a point that he just can't be from God. And so they particularly want to get the people involved to deny Jesus, as long as they don't get led astray and and believe Jesus is the Christ. So they first question the man himself. And the man says, well, he must be a prophet. So obviously they don't like that. They then turn to the parents of the man. Um, Now, the parents are afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. I mean, you might also be afraid if you're talking to someone and there's a risk that you say the wrong thing and you're going to get kicked out of church. Um, So they're afraid of this, and so cleverly they stick to exactly the facts. So they say, look, he's definitely our son. We know he was blind, and we see he can now see, but we don't know who healed him, and we don't know how he did it. Uh, So they kind of protect themselves in that way. And so then the Pharisees uh, go back to the man. They try to catch him out again with a second round of cross-examination. And uh, this time their their approach is is quite a bit more cynical. Um, They come to the man and in verse 24 they say, give glory to God. Uh, We know this man is a sinner, right? So I see them doing almost two things here. They're they're trying to blackmail him. They're sort of saying, look, you know, you don't want to make God angry now. You don't want to make us throw you out. There's a bit of a threat there of give glory to God now. Um, but then also there's kind of a like siding up to him and saying, listen, like we know he's a sinner, right? Like tell us what really happened. You know, there's, tell us the backstory behind this. Um, and for me, I think I see a kind of a very cynical attitude here, which is, a, is, a, is a, an attitude which I think is quite prevalent in our culture today, which I sometimes I think fall into, which is where cynically you sort of see through everything. 
you sort of know that if it's politicians sort of promising a whole lot of things, you're like, nah, they, they're just doing it for their own, you know, to get the votes, to enrich themselves. If, if church leaders are, are preaching and stuff, you can see through them and say, well, they're actually in it for the money or for their own, for their own interest. And you learn to see through a lot of things, I think especially reading through the news and with a lot of the politics going on, you can, you can really start to see through everything. Um, but the problem with seeing through everything, like the Pharisees here, seeing through Jesus, I mean, he did the most amazing thing, but they still find a way to see through it and find his real motives and that he's really actually a sinner. Um, the problem is if you see through everything, you end up seeing nothing. If you think about it, it's kind of obvious that if you see through everything, you're not, you don't see anything. There's nothing left to see. Nothing is pure anymore. Um, nothing is as it seems. Everything has a backstory. Everything has an actual explanation for why someone did something good. Um, nothing is pure. In the end, you become so enlightened that in the end, you're blind. And they're clearly blind here to who Jesus is. But the man who was blind is seeing things clearly now. And so his answer to this question or this statement, really, of we know this man is a sinner, his answer is very straightforward and beautiful. He says, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And it's, a, it's an amazing line, which we have in many songs, and which is really a, a testimony for, for believers. If, if we have come to know Jesus, that's our testimony, is that we were blind, but now we see. Before, we didn't really get it all, but there was a point at which the lights went on, uh, and, and we came to know Jesus. And there was a type of an understanding and a knowledge which is not the kind that the Pharisees had. It's not about knowing everything. You don't have to know all the rules and regulations. You don't have to know all the theology. You have to know the Bible backwards before you can know Jesus and before you can tell others about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying those things aren't important. There's definitely value in, 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 in knowing stuff and in learning more and more about Jesus and about the Bible. But you can know those things and not know Jesus. Like the Pharisees, you can know a whole lot but be blind to the obvious reality of who Jesus is and not know him personally. And the man continues here, um, and he, he, he counters their argument. Their argument is he can't be from God because he broke the Sabbath and is therefore a sinner. And the man simply says, well, God would not have allowed such a great miracle to take place if this man was not from God, if he were a sinner opposed to God. Um, maybe just read verses 29 and 33 with me to just see this, this argument. So 29 uh, the Pharisees speaking, they say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This man were not from God. He could do nothing. And it's interesting that this man's, this uneducated man's argument is perfectly in line with the Old Testament scriptures. If you're having a, a debate based on what the Old Testament scriptures say, this points to Jesus being God. Have a look with me at Exodus 4.11, where God is speaking to Moses, the very prophet they claim to follow. This is what God speaks to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So if you actually take what the Old Testament says, 
Jesus must be God, because who does this? And the man's argument is simple. Who's ever heard of a man giving sight to someone who was born blind? And so we see the Pharisees here humiliated and completely defeated at their own game. They've lost the argument. And in the end, they take the lowest and most dirtiest trick of all. When you really stack an argument, it works really well. You just attack the person. All right? So now they say, how dare you lecture us? You were steeped in sin at birth. And then they cast him out of the temple. A sinner. <laughs> so we see the Pharisees standing in proud, self-righteous judgment of that man who must be a sinner because he was born blind. Now, if we'd read the whole of chapter 8, we might have been even more primed to just see how hypocritical this is of them. Because earlier in chapter 8, just before Jesus makes the I am statement, uh, Jesus had actually cleverly gotten the Pharisees to concede that they actually are, are sinners, that they actually can't judge. Um, he tells, we see the story in, at the start of chapter 8 of where the Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus, a woman who was caught in adultery. And they bring, him to, they bring her to Jesus and they say to him, uh, Moses commanded us to stone such, such women, but what do you say we should do? Now, it's a trick question. They are trying to catch Jesus out because if Jesus says, yes, uh, you should stone her as the law says, then Jesus would get in trouble with the Roman authorities because they weren't allowed to stone people for that according to the Roman law. But if Jesus says, no, you know, you should forgive her, um, don't stone her, maybe just give her a harsh rebuke and let her go, then they will say, but you do not uphold the law, therefore you can't be from God. So it's a trick question, they're trying to catch him out. And Jesus' answer not only evades the, the trick, but it also teaches us and them something huge about who Jesus is, about who he is as the light of the world. He says to them, if any one of you is without sin... Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then slowly, one by one, the people leave. The Pharisees leave. All of them leave until eventually Jesus is the only one left, which is significant because it shows us that Jesus is actually the only one who could condemn her. He is the only one who would be justified to stone her for what she'd done. Uh, he is the rightful judge of the world, but he doesn't condemn her there. He says to her, a woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's, it's a very powerful story. It's, it's very emotive. Um, but one thing it shows is that these Pharisees had no right to stand in judgment of this man. They actually deep down kind of knew it and had already kind of uh, admitted to that in a way. But they kept blinding themselves deliberately to their own problem of sin. And they stand in self-righteous judgment of this man keeping themselves from coming to Jesus. And so Jesus summarizes at the end of our, of our section in verses 39 to 41, he summarizes sort of what he's been teaching through all this. So let's read 39 to 41 again. So this is still the conversation with the man at the end, but there's some Pharisees listening in. And he says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So 
despite not judging the man and despite not judging the woman, Jesus says he did actually come into the world for judgment. Um, and as the only man who was left standing with the woman, he actually is able to judge. He is the rightful judge. But he says, as he says in this passage, as long as he is in the world, he is the light of the world. And so there's a time of grace in which Jesus is there to bring people from darkness into the light. He says the nighttime of judgment is, is coming. Uh, there was that passage at the start here where he says, while it is still day, we do the works of God, and I'm the light of the world while I'm in the world. The night is coming where no one can work. And so Jesus will ultimately be the judge of the world, but we're in this time of grace where those who recognize they're in darkness can come into the light. So we see a woman in darkness coming into the light. We see the man uh, coming into the light physically and then spiritually. Um, The important thing is that those people had no pretenses. They had no false sense of being in the light already. Um, And that's a huge step in being ready to accept Jesus. Um, A few years ago, while I was uh, in the Cape, uh, I did some time in Polsmoor Prison. Um, (laughs) Let me rephrase. I I was involved in uh, some some outreach work to people in Polsmoor Prison. Um, We uh, we would go in once a week for a few weeks and present the gospel to them. But it was really, I learned a lot in that because it was amazing to see how open these people were to the gospel. Um, they were serious criminals. We, we didn't know what people had been in there for, but they were in there for 10, 15, 20 years, some of the guys we were, were talking to. And so no doubt there are people there who had murdered, maybe who had committed rape, all sorts of serious things. Um, and maybe as a result, they had absolutely no objection to being taught about the problem of sin, um, which is a huge obstacle for a lot of people. Um, you have to understand and recognize that you have a problem of sin before you can accept Jesus and come into the light. Uh, on the other hand, the most dangerous place to be is in a place where you don't know you're in danger. Maybe you've seen movies where uh, you know something bad's about to happen and the music is really ominous and the, the movie's called t- Taken or <laughs> and the person in danger is blissfully unaware uh, and you're like, no, like, look around or whatever. Um, it's a bit like that. Sadly here we see the Pharisees Blind to the need for Jesus. And a lot, of peop- a lot of people today, blind to their need, refusing to accept that they maybe have a problem. Um, and as a result, Jesus tells them, because they think they can see, their guilt remains. And so for us, we need to ask ourselves, uh, who are we in the story? And, and what is our response to Jesus? Um, perhaps you're somebody who is all too aware of your own struggles and sins. Maybe you, you feel the shame and guilt very keenly. Uh, but maybe you worry that it's too much and can God accept me and am I the kind of person who could make it to church and who could become a regular church person and so on. Um, And I would encourage you to not let anyone uh, or anything convince you that that is true. There's there's no way that anyone can be too much in darkness for Jesus as the light of the world to be relevant to you. Um, Jesus says elsewhere that I have come not for the healthy but for the sick. Um, so you don't take you don't take a bath, you don't clean yourself up before getting in the bath, for example. Um, and so, really, um, no one is beyond God's grace. And there's an encouragement always, an invitation from God always to come into the light, um, to come and know Jesus. Um, but perhaps you're a bit like the blind man somewhere along this journey of understanding who Jesus is. 
Perhaps, you know, something has happened, you've had a bit of an experience, or you've maybe been coming to church for a while, uh, you've heard a bit about the gospel, and you're quite struck by it, it's, there's definitely something going on, but you're not quite sure exactly what it, what it means for your life, maybe you haven't made a kind of a final decision, or, or you know, a decisive step to actually trust in Jesus, to, to say, I, I do believe in Him, and He is the Christ, He is God, and I'm going to worship Him with my whole life. Um, maybe you're somewhere along the way there, and I'd encourage you today to go all the way there um, and to recognize exactly who Jesus is um, and to make a, make a choice for him. Or maybe you're like the neighbors and the family in the story who, who were a bit scared to confess who Jesus was. Maybe they were a little worried about being thrown out of church. Um, so maybe, we're, maybe you're worried about what, what will people think? Well, my, how will I sit with my family and the way we do things? Um, how will I sit with my friends? What will the implications be for a relationship I'm in, perhaps? Um, what will the costs be? How will it affect my career, my, my, my plans for my life? And if that's where you're at, then I'd encourage you to think long and hard about the, the seriousness of the darkness that you're in. Um, don't sort of think, well... It's not that bad. I, I can. I'm, I'm going to choose choose to stay out of the out of the light. I'd encourage you to, to to take the plunge, to count the cost, but to make a brave and a wise decision to to, to accept Jesus and to trust in Him. Uh, maybe you're somebody who is a bit cynical and maybe thinks you're okay, um, and uh, maybe you feel like you kind of sort of see through things at church and you've been to a lot of churches and you know it's it's lots of promises, but but it's never really hit home. Um, you think it's a bit, uh, a bit fake. And I encourage you to, to do a couple of things, to dig a little deeper in terms of self-reflection and, and ask, you know, am I really fine? Um, do I really have everything sorted out in my life? Um, are there dark places in my life which actually, if they were exposed, would show that I actually do have some problems and, and some, need some help? Um, and I'd also encourage you to think about the evidence for Jesus. Uh, the evidence is fairly clear. Um, and one of the things this, this, uh, the story teaches us is that um, it's kind of obvious that Jesus is God. Like, it's, it's really clear, and you have to be quite uh, almost delusional and, and very stubborn to not realize that Jesus is who he says he is. But at the same time, we need a miracle to produce that faith. Um, the evidence is there for Jesus, but we also need him to make the miracle happen and to open our eyes and to see him for who he is. And so we should all pray. We should humble ourselves before God and ask him to keep showing him uh, himself, uh, to keep giving us faith, uh, recognizing that it is a gift from him. Um, even for those of us who, who've been maybe at church for a long time or Christian for a while, I think we also can slip into a kind of a cynicism. The, the story can become familiar. The God's word can become familiar. These amazing truths can, can be things we hear every, every week. And they can, they can stop heading home. And, and for me, that's, that's often a struggle. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I keep praying and that God will keep impacting me, even, even as I look at this today in preparation and preaching on Jesus, the light of the world. Like I've been convicted about, is it heading home for me? Like, am I impacted by this? Is, is Jesus being the light of the world something that has direct application in my life day to day? Does that encourage me? Um, and... Uh, and I'd encourage you all to do that uh, as well. And so wherever we're at on our journey, we're all somewhere in our relationship with God. Um, 
But there's always two options that we see here in the text. There's always the option of rejecting him in unbelief and sin, or the option of wholeheartedly worshiping him. There's never really an in-between option with Jesus. It's, it's never okay to kind of think, well, maybe he's a good man from God, a wise teacher. Uh, he always demands uh, complete obedience, complete trust and worship, uh, and anything else is to actually reject him. And so today, let's choose to worship him. Let's come to Jesus, the one who is God, the one who reveals God to us, the one who puts a spotlight on our sin and shows us how much we need God, uh, and the one who cleanses us and opens our eyes. Let's pray together. For Jesus, we want to humble ourselves before you today. We recognize that any faith, any, any belief that we may have in you is something that you give us. And so we ask that you would open our eyes today. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to know him and trust him. I pray that this truth, that Jesus is, is the light, would be something that um, really impacts our lives, Lord, that we would be transformed, Lord, like the man who was born blind and people weren't even sure it was him. Lord, may our lives be different. Uh, would, you, would you transform us, Lord, and change us? And I pray that you'd help us to worship you, Father, that we would recognize who you are and we would love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.